And each week we've read out of Ephesians 6, beginning in verse uh, 10, which has kind of been the foundation of this whole series. And it says this, it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Notice that it doesn't say if the day comes, but it says when the day comes that you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for the saints. Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you for your word. And we just pray that you would continue to speak to us in the remaining time that we have together, God. That you would speak loud and clear, that you would speak through me this morning, God. That you would give me the words, God, that you want us to hear and give us the ears to hear it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now, I notice in those verses that five times it talks about this idea of a battle in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realm, as though there is something else going on. This is the idea of there is more to this war. And I think a lot of people are a lot more spiritual than maybe they will give themselves credit for or that they even sometimes realize. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, but we actually live in a city that is known for being a very spiritual city. When we started to look into this idea of planting Harbor Church here in Sarasota, we were looking at different things of demographic studies and things that the city was known for. We, we ran across one really interesting article actually in the New York Times called Conjuring the Spirits in Sarasota, Florida. And it was all about how this kind of, kind of metaphysical community of spiritualists really believed that Sarasota was a place that was drawing them, that was calling them to this area. And we kind of thought that was interesting because I think that what we find in everyone is that everyone has a spiritual void that they're looking to fill. The, the problem is that we don't always know that the void we're looking to fill is spiritual. And so we have this emptiness, we have this void in our lives, but we find ourselves filling it with physical things. We find ourselves trying new relationships, trying new habits, trying new routines, and nothing tends to fill the void because you cannot fill a spiritual void by natural means. And so we try these new relationships and the relationships don't work out because we put on that relationship an expectation that it could never fulfill. We put on that relationship an expectation that it could never meet. And for some of us, it may play itself out in more material ways where we try to buy and purchase and have our way into being fulfilled. But the truth is that you can have the greatest relationships, you can have the greatest possessions, but unless you fill that spiritual void with what it was intended to be filled with, you will never be truly, completely fulfilled. And so we had run across this article and we thought that was really interesting. And then 
We started house shopping and we kind of looked at all these different houses in Sarasota. We were moving over from Lakeland and we had all these different situations where houses fell through or buyers of our house backed out or sellers of houses here found other buyers. And it was just this whole situation. And finally, we found the house that we ended up buying and we went for the inspection and the, the owner of the house was actually there. And she was a very interesting lady. She said she was a spiritual healer. She had altars and rocks and all kinds of things all over the house. It was a very interesting scene. But we felt like from the moment that we kind of started this process of stepping into this city, we kept being reminded that people, not just in this city, but around the world, have a spiritual need they're looking to meet. They have a spiritual need that they are looking to meet, a spiritual void. And what I think we have to understand is that emptiness is always an opportunity. Emptiness is always an opportunity. Uh, a few years before we moved here, my wife and I had a friend who was a businessman and he came to us and he said, uh, I'm, I'm opening this new office complex and it's going to be like a shared workspace and I would really like for you guys to design the inside of it, to do all of the, the furniture, to do all of the paint, to do everything. Kristen and I were kind of into that. So we were excited about it and uh, we had talked about it for a while and talked about it for a while. And then he, eventually I said, you know, I think we need to see the space. Like, I think we need to get a feel for the space so we can kind of get an idea of the things that we'll need to fill it. And he said, okay, it's, it's actually pretty close to where you work. You can walk over and meet me. So I walked a couple blocks from where I was into this building, really cool looking building on the outside. I opened the two back doors and I'm not kidding you. It was a dirt floor and brick walls, just this huge building, dirt floor, brick walls. And I was like, this is the place? And he's like, yeah, this is the place. It was, a, it was an old building. We had to take up the foundation. We had to take everything off the walls. We're literally starting from scratch. And it was a little bit overwhelming to stand in this space. We thought that he wanted us to maybe buy some furniture, pick out some colors for some walls, do some light things. And here what we walk into was a completely empty, torn apart space. But, but after a few weeks of kind of getting our head around it and starting to, to plan and get into the process, we started to really seize the idea of the opportunity of the emptiness in that space, uh, of the opportunity of starting from nothing and filling it and seeing a vision come to pass. Emptiness is always an opportunity, and we see that all throughout the scriptures. All throughout the scriptures, we see that this idea that whenever God wants to move, he so often begins with someone who has emptied themselves. He begins with something that is empty. We, we see it in the Old Testament. We, we see this story where there's this woman who is a widow, and she's living with her son, and she's run out of resources. She's run out of oil. And oil in that day was like the most prized resource. Oil was used to light homes. It was used to cook food. It was even used to what they would say is anoint somebody. But what it was really was like is like a perfume to kind of cover up the scents that maybe were going on from them not bathing as much. Oil was used everywhere and she was out of oil. And there was this prophet by the name of Elisha who came to her house. She let him know that he was or that she was out of oil and he tells her son to go and get for him empty jars, to go get empty jars. So the son runs out, he gets the empty jars, he brings them back to the house, and Elisha begins to pour oil into the jars until they're filled to the brim. They're filled to the brim. Time and time again, they're filled to the brim until finally they say, we need more jars. And they say, we're out of jars. And it was then that the oil stopped flowing. 
And as long as they had something empty to be filled, the oil kept flowing. As long as they had something empty that that was ready to be used, the oil kept flowing. We see a similar story in the New Testament where Jesus actually performs his very first miracle at a wedding ceremony. And again, at this ceremony, they've run out of wine. And that was a big, big no-no at weddings in that day. They had run out of wine, and it was going to be this extremely embarrassing moment for this family. And so Jesus' mother comes to him and says, basically, is there anything you can do? And he says, find for me some empty jars, fill them with water, and then he turns them into wine. See, there is this theme all throughout Scripture that when you have a need, that the path to getting that need filled is to empty yourself. That the path to fulfillment is to empty yourself. And I think so often our knee-jerk reaction to having a need is to try to fill that need. Try to locate the thing that will satisfy. Try to locate the thing that will leave us fulfilled. But Jesus, time and time again, when he works a miracle, when he says you are in need of something, he says it begins by emptying yourself. It begins by emptying yourself. But there's one more verse in scripture that talks about emptiness that I think should be a little bit sobering to us and is relevant to the series and to the things that we're talking about now. It's in Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. And this is Jesus speaking. And he says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first, is worse than the first. Now, notice what happens here is basically what Jesus is saying is that when when someone has something in their lives that they need to get out of their lives, that you can't leave yourself empty because when you leave yourself empty, you leave yourself vulnerable. It's not about staying empty. It's not about remaining empty. And it basically says that if you just empty yourself, if you just empty yourself, that those things will come back in a greater way than they ever have. And I kind of was thinking the other day that this kind of reminds me of what happens with uh, spirit Halloween stores. Because have you ever noticed that like the moment a place that you liked goes empty and it sits clean for a while, like two weeks later, there's a spirit Halloween store in it. And I don't know how they do it. Their business model is, is totally based around one day a year. And yet somehow those places get empty. And man, there is a spirit Halloween store in there in no time. See, if you don't fill it with something better, it's going to get filled with a bunch of junk. It's going to get filled with a bunch of stuff that you don't need. And so often that's what happens in our lives is we tend to live on empty. We, we tend to live depleted and we leave ourselves vulnerable to being filled with the wrong things. I have a pretty negative habit, uh, at least my wife definitely thinks it's uh, negative. I'll start by asking this. There's kind of two types of people. How many of you, when your gas light comes on, you are quick to fill up? You're quick to fill up. Show of hands, show of hands. A lot of you, okay. How many of you, when your gas light comes on, you take your time to fill up? 
A few, a few. I, this is the habit that Kristen does not appreciate. Um, whenever my gaslight comes on, I reset my odometer um, because I know that one time in my Honda Pilot, I went 31 miles with the light on. 31 miles I went with the light on. We were on the interstate. It wasn't by choice, but I looked down. I saw that the light was on, and I've always had this habit of hitting the odometer when I know the light comes on so I know how long I've gone. We hadn't had this car very long. We were on this stretch of interstate where it just seemed like there was no gas station to be found anywhere. 31 miles before we got to a gas station. And so now I know if the light comes on, I got 31 miles. Like, I mean, I don't need to be in a hurry the 31 miles is pretty decent. Like most of the time I'm like, I can go, like I can get to work and back. I can get the kids to school and back. Like 31 miles is pretty solid. But a couple weeks back, or a couple months back rather, we were on vacation in the mountains and we uh, had rented this Airbnb. And so we didn't know the area that great. And when we were pulling out of the Airbnb, I noticed that our gas light was on. So I slipped into my habit and I hit the odometer and we're driving around and I'm keep thinking, surely we're going to come on a gas station. We're on our way to this really cool little hiking spot. I'm like, we're definitely going to hit a gas station. It's no big deal. But I started to get nervous because we're at like 24 miles. And I know that I've gone 31, but that's all I know. So we're 24 miles. So we start searching along route for a gas station. There's not a gas station along the route, but there's one seven miles away. I don't know if you're good at math. That puts us at exactly the 31 miles that I know that we have. So, so I'm like, yes, let's go to the gas station that is seven miles away. So we start driving. We start driving. We're on our way. And then we find out, we see, oh, actually, there's one that's four miles away. So that gives us a little breathing room. We click on the one that's four miles away. We pull into the gas station four miles away. We're just under our 31 miles. The gas station has closed. It looks like it closed actually years ago. I don't know why it was still in maps, but it had closed. Kristen is not happy. She is not feeling this situation. So we get back to the driving. We get on the road. We're on our way. Things are very stressful. We were on our way to have like a fun day, but it is tense. Finally, we find a gas station that's way off course. Right around 31 miles, we roll in and we fill up. But here's what I notice about when you're, when you're driving on empty, there's a lot of similarities to when you're living on empty because you drive differently when you're driving on empty. And you live different when you're living empty. And so sometimes when you're driving on empty, you'll find some, some similar characteristics to when you're living on empty. I can tell you this, when you're driving on empty, it is stressful and it is exhausting. It is stressful and it is exhausting. You are not enjoying the drive. You're not noticing the view. You've got like your hands at 10 and two and you've got your eyes for me on the odometer because 31 miles, but you've got your eyes on that light just beaming at you. You know that you're coming up on empty. It's stressful and exhausting. And it also brings in a level of uncertainty. Like you don't know you're gonna make it. And I don't know about you, but I've gone through seasons of life where I was living empty and the slightest thing could come along that shouldn't throw me off course. But there was something about it that I just didn't know if I was going to make it through it. I just didn't know if I was going to make it where I needed to be. And finally, so often when you're driving on empty, it pulls you off course. It pulls you off course because what happens is you just have to go to whatever will fill you up. It no longer is about where you were going. It's about the immediate need that you have right in that moment. 
And so it pulls you off of your destination, puts your focus on the immediate, and it takes you off course. So you are more vulnerable when you are living empty. And emptiness is an opportunity for God to come and fill that emptiness and that void. But here's what I want you to notice. In all of those instances that we touched on where God fills something empty, it was for the purpose of then being given. It was for the purpose of then being given. When Elisha filled the jars, it was for oil so that the woman could give, to, could feed her family, could supply for her family. When Jesus filled the jars with wine, it was so that the wedding guests could receive that wine. See, God always wants to fill you so that you can give things away. And by the way, that is the difference in what God wants to fill you with and what the enemy wants to fill you with. God wants to fill you with things so that you can give them away. And the enemy wants to fill you with things so that you have nothing to give. The enemy wants to fill you with things so that you cannot receive what God has for you and give it away. God wants to fill you so you can give it away, but he wants you to have no room to receive. And I don't know about you, but I have this thing. I'm just bearing all of my quirks this morning. I hate holding on to things. I don't like being the person that has to hold on to things. Like if we get out of the car, I immediately give the keys to Kristen. If Kristen is not with me, generally I will take my car key off of the ring, leave the ring in the car and put the key in my pocket because I don't even want to carry the whole key ring. I just want the key that I need. I hate carrying stuff. But when you have kids, it's inevitable that you're going to get handed stuff constantly. We, we went to a, a little event at their school the other day, and I thought I was home free. This time, I actually left my keys in my car. It's another thing I do a lot. If you want to steal my car right now, you could. The keys are in it. And I leave my keys in my car because my thought is, who is searching cars for keys? Like, who is opening doors and looking in? Well, I'm not going to tell you where they are, but who is searching cars for keys? And so I leave my keys in my car a lot. I had done that. I had nothing in my hands. Within like two minutes, my youngest daughter or my middle daughter comes up to me with an armload of things she had won and just hands them to me and walks off. So I spent the rest of the evening carrying a bunch of stuff that I did not want, that was not mine, and it was not mine to carry. And this is so often what the enemy tries to do is he tries to get your hands full so that you can't receive anything else. He tries to get your hands full of all these other things so that you cannot receive other things. And I just have to tell you that there are some of us that are walking around full, but we're full of the wrong thing. And there's some of us that are walking around empty, and that emptiness is an opportunity, but it is just as much an opportunity for God to do a work and for God to fill you in a way so that you can give away and so that you can continually be filled and give. It is just as much an opportunity for that as it is for the enemy to come along and try to fill you with things so that you have no room to receive. And I think that so often there are really three things that the enemy comes at us with that he tries to fill our hands with so that we cannot receive. And for some of us, this idea is going to be like, these are things that we need to watch out for. These are things that we need to stay away from. But for others of us, it needs to be a sobering moment that we realize these are things that we're already carrying, that these are things that we're already holding on to, and that in order to receive what God has for us, we have to be able to open our hands and let go of them so that we can receive what God has for us. The first thing that the enemy will try to fill you with, that he will try to fill your hands with, is anger. He would try to fill your hands with anger. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, notice he uses this language of a foothold. And the idea of a foothold, I used to, when I was a kid, I used to think that it was like literally holding onto your foot. Like he's got you in a foothold. So you can't go anywhere. But a foothold is this idea of when you're climbing, that you have something that will hold your step, that you can take another step up, that you can gain a little more elevation, that you can get a little bit higher. And what Paul is saying here is that anger so often is that foothold where the devil just gains a little bit of ground in your life, where the devil just gets a little bit more elevation in your life. And he says, do not give the devil a foothold. And all throughout scripture, we see this idea that so often what begins as a foothold ends as a stronghold. Yeah. And a foothold is this little thing that seems, seems innocent, doesn't seem like a huge deal. Oh, it's just one more step. But then a stronghold is a place of safety for an enemy amongst their enemies. And so it means that literally at that point, the enemy has set up camp in your area and set up camp in your mind, in your life, a foothold so often becomes a stronghold. And see what Paul is saying here is he's not saying don't ever get angry. He very clearly says, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. See, what I wanna be clear about is you will never be so spiritual that you never get angry. Can I get an amen from somebody on that? Because all you have to do is drive through a parking lot and realize that nobody looks back when they back up to get a little bit angry, to realize that nobody's paying any attention. They're just coming back. That's all you have to do to get a little bit angry. But Paul is saying, in your anger, do not sin. See, Jesus got angry. The, the Bible tells us about Jesus actually getting angry. See, what you have to pay attention to is not that you get angry. It's what you get angry at and how long you stay angry. How long you stay angry. Can I tell you this? You can deal with today's anger. It's, tomorrow, it's yesterday's anger that starts to become a foothold. It's yesterday's anger that starts to become a stronghold. You can deal with, see, that, that's what Paul is saying when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. See, a lot of times we use that verse as this idea of like, you have to have the conversation today. You have to get rid of it today. The truth is that that's not always possible. That's not always practical. But you can deal with your anger that day. Like there may still be a situation that needs to be resolved, but you can deal with your anger in that situation. And Paul is saying, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with today's anger before it becomes yesterday's anger. Because yesterday's anger is what grows and becomes a foothold in your life. Proverbs 29, 11 says, fools vent their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. Now, a lot of us would be frustrated by this because this is, not, this is not an idea of saying, oh, you should stuff your anger down and just hold it in. But how many of you know that anger needs oxygen? Like, like anger, there is something about anger that like when you like really give into it and you really let it out, it usually doesn't actually go away. It usually fuels it. And see, what we have to do is we have to pay attention because so often we tend to release our anger on people rather than release, releasing our anger to God. We have to learn to, to place our anger in the right place. See, here's the good news is that God can handle your anger. God can handle whatever situation you are angry about. 
Whatever it is that happened to you that you didn't understand, whatever was unexpected in your life that has caused you anger, the good news is God can handle that anger better than you can. And yet we tend to release it on people rather than to God. It's not talking about stuffing it and letting it fester. It's talking about putting it in the right place. We have to release it to God. We have to get rid of anger if we're going to have room to be filled with the things that God wants us to be filled with. The second thing that the enemy will try to fill you with is unfruitfulness. Unfruitfulness. If you look in the scripture at Ephesians 5, verse 11, Paul says, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. If I can just be really honest with you, the the devil doesn't necessarily have to defeat you if he can just numb you into fruitlessness. If he can just numb you into not paying attention, and, and I am not one of those people that only listens to Christian music and only watches Christian films. I'm not that person. Um, but what I will say is that we have to be very careful what we let into our minds and into our hearts, that we have to be very careful to discern what is fruitless for us, that is not adding to what God wants to do in our lives. There is something to knowing that the movies we watch and the things that we're listening to, to, be, to pay attention to those gateways into our minds and into our hearts. Like I know in my own life that there have been things that once bothered me that no longer bother me, and that should bother me. You know what I'm saying? That that should bother me, that there are things in my life that didn't bother me that now or that did bother me and now they don't bother me. See, Satan likes to just slowly numb us into fruitlessness. Often we think that if it's not doing any harm, that it's not doing any harm. But the truth is that what we sometimes perceive as not doing any harm is slowly building up those footholds in our lives. And it might be a slow climb, one foothold at a time, one thought at a time, one movie at a time, one thing at a time, and suddenly you find yourself numb to the things that God wants to do for us. We have to pay attention to what we're regularly doing, what we're regularly taking in, and how it is shaping our lives, how it is shaping our lives. And the final thing that so often the enemy tries to fill us with and I want to kind of camp here for a second because I think it's a huge one, is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 says, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if, need, if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sake in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. See, notice here that Paul links unforgiveness and spiritual warfare. He says, when you are not forgiving, that you are giving Satan an advantage, that you are giving him a way in, that you're giving him a tactical advantage. See, we have to remember what we talked about kind of in week two is that Satan is a liar. He is the father of lies. He's referred to as the father of lies. And I think so often one of the lies that we believe when it comes to unforgiveness is this idea that, well, if we are not in relationship to the person or the situation anymore, we don't really have to forgive them. Like if we don't see them anymore, we don't have to forgive them. 
If we are not in their sphere of influence anymore, we don't have to forgive them. But the truth is this. The the truth is that if you were in a relationship where there is some forgiveness that needs to happen, whether you are still in a physical, in a personal relationship with that person, you are still in a relationship with them if there's unforgiveness. You are still in a relationship with them if there is unforgiveness because they are taking up space in your mind and in your heart and in your spirit where you know there is some forgiveness that needs to happen here. And so often the enemy will whisper in your ear that if you're not in the relationship anymore, you don't really have to forgive anymore. That you don't really have to take that step. And yet we don't realize that we are still in that relationship. See, forgiving others is not just about restoring your relationship with them. It's about restoring your relationship with God. Because he clearly says in this verse, he says, as you have forgiven, I will forgive. In other words, if you are holding on to unforgiveness, you are putting space in your relationship with God. You're putting space in your relationship with God that needs to be removed. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their sin, your Father will not forgive your sin. See, I think that if we were, knew that we were like a habitual liar... If we knew that we had a habitual problem in our lives, we would usually take care of it. Once we realize it, we would usually take care of it. But we don't always take care of the unforgiveness that's in our hearts. We don't always take care of those things that we're holding on to. And I think one of the main reasons is this, is that the truth about forgiveness is that being able to extend forgiveness begins with being able to receive forgiveness. It begins with being able to forgive yourself. See, so often the the reason that we think others need to earn our forgiveness is because we think we need to earn God's forgiveness. That we could not possibly be forgiven. We have to earn our forgiveness from God. And so we will make other people earn our forgiveness. But the truth is that we will never understand how it's possible to forgive others if we don't have a good grasp on how God forgave us. If we don't have a good grasp on how God forgave us, we will never be able to forgive others. 1 Timothy 1, verses 13 through 15 says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This is Paul saying, listen, I am a sinner and yet God has poured out his grace on me. And that's the reality that we all need to receive today is that we are all sinners, that God has poured out his grace on us, that God has forgiven us so that we can receive forgiveness. And I'm gonna invite the team to come back up as we look at Isaiah 1, 18. And it says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. See, once you accept that you are forgiven, you enable yourself to forgive others. Matthew 10 verse 8 says, Freely you have received, now freely give. If you want to be able to freely give forgiveness in your life, 
you have to first freely receive it. You have to first forgive yourself. And see, that is so often the hardest thing about forgiveness is to receive your own forgiveness. And, and I want to be clear whenever I'm talking about forgiveness that there are relationships and there are people in your lives who have hurt you in such a way that the, the, the idea of forgiveness is not about reconciling the relationship. It's not about entering back into that relationship. Listen, if that's possible, man, that is always great. That is always the goal. Reconciliation is always great. But we also have to realize that there are some people in our lives who we need to forgive, but then not let back into our lives. I'm not, I'm not telling you to forgive and bring some toxic relationship back into your life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about you doing the work in your heart to forgive and move on from that situation. But the truth is that so often the one we can't forgive is ourselves because we know ourselves the most, don't we? We know ourselves the most. We, we know the perception that people have of us, but we know the real us. We know the real thoughts. We know the real struggles. And so often we wonder how God could possibly forgive. See, if you notice, the enemy wants you to be angry, unfruitful, and unforgiven. But God wants you to have peace, bear fruit, and receive forgiveness. He wants you to have peace, bear fruit, and receive forgiveness. There's this passage in the Psalms in 139 verses 23 and 24. David says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, what you notice is that God wants to search your thoughts and lead you out. The enemy wants to search you and leave you right where you are. Leave you feeling alone. Leave you in your unforgiveness. Leave you in your unfruitfulness. Leave you in your anger. But the good news is that God wants to lead you out. See, that is the good news about spiritual warfare, is that God has given you the tools that you need to fight the battle. God has given you the tools to fight the battle. The, the takeaway is not that we are in this battle that we might lose. The takeaway is that we are in a battle that we are completely equipped for. And not only are we completely equipped for, but we can go into the battle knowing that ultimately God wins the war, that ultimately the enemy is defeated, that we may have to fight some battles in the meantime, but we know that the enemy is defeated and that God has given us the ability to resist the devil. James 4, verse 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. See, how I kind of want to close this whole series out is that we have to realize that our authority over the enemy is only as good as our relationship with God. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that the enemy will resist you when you submit yourself to God. See, some of us in this room, maybe we haven't fully submitted ourselves to God. Maybe we haven't fully trusted God with our lives. And this is the day, this is the morning, this is the time for us to step into that reality that the way to fight these battles is through the authority that we have in a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
It's through the tools that we have, through our relationship with Jesus Christ. It all comes back to our relationship with Jesus Christ. And for some of us, maybe we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but we really haven't tapped into that authority. We really haven't exercised that authority and we need to step into a new boldness. We need to step into a new understanding of the authority that we have in him. And for others this morning, maybe you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ or maybe at some point you did, but you kind of stopped living the life. You stopped doing the things that you know God has called you to do. Listen, there is more to this war. We're in a battle that is spiritual and you need to step into a relationship with Jesus Christ if you're going to have the tools and the authority to fight that battle. Would you stand with me this morning and every head bowed, every eye closed all across this room.